If you've got a Bible, open to Luke chapter 5. We'll be in verses 1 to 11 this morning together. Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you as we read it uh, together. And Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, uh, Luke writes these words. He says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to, the, to land, they left everything and followed him. A sociologist named Christian Smith did research on uh, the phenomenon of many, those, uh, and, and, and many Americans of a younger generation, a younger age, who are seem, seemingly um, leaving the church and trying to discover why it is that that's taking place. And what he, one of the things that he pinpointed as far as why that's happening uh, is because many of those who grew up in the uh, 80s, 90s, and even um, the zeros, whatever that decade we're supposed to call it, um, have been uh, kind of inoculated to genuine Christianity because they've experienced or they've tasted of something that he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And the big, those three big words, right? Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. What he means by moralistic is that in many churches, many folks have kind of come to have a taste of the fact that Christianity really just kind of boils down to living a good moral life, a good, being a good upstanding citizen within your community, within your neighborhood. And so if you've got the morals in place, then that's, there's your foundation. Therapeutic in the sense uh, that it should make you feel good about yourself, right? So if you've got problems, if you've got troubles, then you come back to the church and you get therapy for whatever it is issues in life that you're wrestling or struggling with, and it makes you feel good about yourself. It lifts you up and it builds you up. Deism in the sense that there is a God out there, a general abstract God out there that kind of set the world into motion and step back and goes, I hope you guys can kind of figure things out. I'll be here whenever you need a little bit of assistance, whenever you go through hard times. But until then, you guys just kind of keep rolling and live a moral life and feel real good about yourself. Right? And so moralistic therapeutic deism, and what Christian Smith calls MTD, I call diet Christianity. Okay? Diet Christianity. Now what diet Christianity, the way I would kind of unpack that for you a little bit this morning, diet Christianity is this. It's essentially believing that God exists, that he is out there somewhere, and that I call on him in prayer whenever I need something from him. So as long as I've kind of got everything else rolling in my life really well, I don't need him, so I don't petition him, and I don't intercede for others, I don't go to him in prayer. I don't necessarily open the Bible except for whenever I come to church on Sundays. And so believing that God exists, calling on him when we have need, going, understanding that Jesus has some good things to say, right? He's a good teacher, and so the things that he says about, about what we should do and how we should live, those are really good things that I apply, try and apply to my life so that I can live a very moralistic kind of existence. 
or attending church when it works for my schedule or when it doesn't cost me anything or demand anything of me. Trying to be a good moral law-abiding citizen and teaching your family to do the same. Right? It's kind of this version of diet Christianity. Now, the problem with diet Christianity and the problem with moralistic therapeutic deism is that whenever folks taste it, oftentimes they think this is the genuine article and this is the genuine stuff. And so it has two detrimental effects. One, for those who have received it because they think that they've genuinely been converted and that they're genuinely followers of Jesus and that they're genuinely real Christians. But then also it has a detrimental effect to those who have rejected it as well because they think they've rejected the genuine article when they haven't really seen the radical call that Jesus gives to his people when he calls them to follow him. So it's got those two detrimental effects. And whenever we read a text like Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, right? When Luke begins his gospel, he's presenting this well-researched and articulated account of who Jesus is and what he's done, not only to give us an intellectual understanding of what Jesus taught and what he did, but also to call us to be his followers, and to live as Jesus would call us to live in response to a gracious encounter that we would have with him. And so when you read a text like Luke 5, 1 through 11, it doesn't fit in that category of diet Christianity or moralistic therapeutic deism. When you see Jesus' followers, his earliest followers, Peter, James, and John, leaving everything behind to follow after Jesus, right? You know, whatever the merits are of drinking diet soda, and those could be debated, right? You can go on Facebook and find all these articles about how, how cancerous and carcinogens, all those things that exist and the chemicals that exist in diet soda, whatever the merits are of drinking them or not, whenever you've done nothing but drink them for a while, or if that's all you've ever tasted, whenever you taste the, a real Coke as opposed to a diet Coke, it's kind of, whoa, it's kind of a little bit, at times it's hard to palate, isn't it? And the same thing is true for those who have grown up in churches where diet Christianity has been the norm whenever they get a taste of the real genuine article like in texts like Luke chapter 5. Sometimes it's real hard to palate. But what I want to do this morning is for us to unpack Luke chapter 5 together and by God's grace that he would give us a palate for it. By God's grace that he would give us a taste for the real genuine article. Right, so what there's, I have two points this morning. Now, those of you who have been with us for a while, okay, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get out early, but I've just got two points, all right? So here's the first point, all right? First point is this. When you think about diet Christianity, diet Christianity involves addition of Jesus to our lives, while real Christianity involves a radical reorientation of our lives around him, Right? Diet Christianity involves just taking Jesus and trying to add him to what I've already got going on, whereas the genuine article, real genuine Christianity involves my life becoming radically reoriented around who Jesus is, where he's going, and what he is doing. If you look in verse 11, I've referenced it once already, but Peter, James, and John are on account of what they've just witnessed in this boat out there on the sea after fishing all night and Jesus calls to them and says, listen, let down your nets on the other side of the boat. Right? He says, take your rod and cast your jig on the other side of the point. Okay? And when they do, they have this miraculous catch of fish. They've never seen it before. In fact, it's so many that both the boats that are there uh, fishing alongside of each other are about to sink because of the weight, additional weight added from all the fish that they brought up as the nets were breaking. And so Peter, James, and John see this, and the text tells us when they get back to land, they leave everything behind, everything behind, and they follow Jesus. 
So now where Jesus is going, they are going. What Jesus is teaching, they are listening to and embracing and seeking to embody. What Jesus is doing, they will now do as his followers, as his disciples. Joel Green, one commentator on the book of Luke, said it this way. He said, having returned to shore, they leave the boats and the marvelous catch. Indeed, they leave everything A notation with obvious economic and vocational, but also with deep-seated social ramifications. Leaving all that had been of value, they will now find their fundamental sense of belonging and being in relationship to Jesus, the community being built around him, and the redemptive purpose he serves. Right? So being in relationship to Jesus, the people who are being gathered by him and around him, and the mission that he's on, the purpose that he has, that's where they're going to find their belonging. That's where they're going to find their being in relationship to him, his people, and his mission. They leave everything behind. The boats, the nets, all these fish that they could have brought to market. They leave everything there. Because of what they've just seen and encountered in Jesus Christ. It's a radical reorientation. There's a transition that takes place in their life whereby they begin to radically reorient everything around where Jesus is going and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying. Now, every major life transition requires reorientation, doesn't it? Absolutely. Right? When you go from high school to college, a major life transition. Some of you guys who are either making that transition now or getting ready to make that transition, there's a radical reorientation, right? Because if you go off to school, your mom's not showing up like at 7.45 a.m. anymore, knocking on the door going, it's time to get up for school, right? You actually have to set an alarm and get out of bed when the alarm goes off and then put on clothes and then go to class, and nobody's sitting there going, okay, what homework do you have today? And pulling out your notebook and going, okay, let's talk through your homework. Now you have to go home and study. Well, you should study or else you'll flunk out of school, right? It requires a reorientation of what you're doing from high school to college. When you graduate college and move into the workforce, it requires a reorientation, doesn't it? Yeah, because your boss, right, your, your, high school prof- prof- or your college professor may have not really cared if you came to class, but your boss cares if you come to work. And if you don't come to work, then you get fired. And so you can't stay up until 3 a.m. any longer and then roll in at 9.15 when you're supposed to be at work at 8. So it requires a reorientation moving from college to, um, to the workplace or from single to married, right? Or from married to single again at times, unfortunately. Or if you move from young married to young parents or from a full house to an empty nest or from working to retired, every life transition requires a reorientation, And so why would we think that the most radical change in transition of life, moving from death to life, being alive, uh, being dead to God to alive to God, from being in the darkness to being in the light, would not require the most radical of reorientations ever known? Ever known. The hip-hop artist Lecrae, I've, I've cited him before, he says it this way in one of his songs called Go Hard. He says, if you didn't know Christ... Would your life look the same? Can they tell you value Jesus by the way you rep his name? Now listen, if you didn't bring your urban hip-hop dictionary with you this morning, rep means represent, okay? Can they tell you value Jesus by the way you represent him? Is your life built around who he is, his people, and his mission? Is it reoriented around him? Or did you just try and say, you know what? I'm going to come to Jesus, but I'm going to take him. I'm going to add him to everything else I've got going on. 
And so I, I'm, I'm going to continue to value, still have the same values, still have the same kind of conduct and behaviors, but now I've got Jesus, and I'm just going to add him in versus saying Jesus is now the center of my being and identity, and everything else is built around him. What he says and where he goes and what he does is now what I should be saying and where I should be going and what I should be engaged in and involved with doing. Now, what kind of reorientation is involved in representing Jesus well? All right. From this text, I want to show you four things all right, that, re- that this radical reorientation involves. All right. The first one is this. It's a reorientation of our security. A reorientation of our security. I want you to notice the disciples leave behind the boats, the nets, and the miraculous catch of fish. And for them, up to this point in their life, that was their source of security. That was their vocation. That was their income. That's why they were putting food on their table. Right? And so it involves this reorientation of our security. What is it that we're going to find security in now? And for the disciples, whenever they leave everything behind to follow Jesus, they're leaving behind their sources of worldly security the things that they trusted in to provide for themselves and for their families. Now, does that mean you've got to go quit your job today? No, it doesn't mean you've got to quit your job today. But what it means is there's a shift that takes place in your heart from trusting in your hard labor to provide for your family to go, and you know what? God is the one who's providing for me. And I'm secure whether or not I have a job because I know God's going to take care of me. I know he's going to provide. He's going to show himself to be faithful, even if I'm unemployed or underemployed. And so my sources of security can't be my vocation, and it can't be a relationship because those are transitory, and they come and go at times in our lives, right? Some of us, our source of security is our ability to control things, right? We're kind of control freaks, real type A kind of people. We've just got to have our hands on everything and kind of manipulate everything to work out just the way that we want it, and that's where our security comes from. But for the disciples, they're leaving about everything that they once found worldly security in, and they're saying, I'm going to follow hard after Jesus He's going to take care of me. There's a reorientation of security, but there's also a reorientation of authority. A reorientation of authority. I want you to notice in the text, there's a shift by which Peter addresses Jesus. Whenever Jesus says, Peter, I want you to throw out the nets. And Peter goes, listen, man, we've been fishing all our lives, and we've been fishing all night. We fished this spot out. There's nothing here. Right? But he says, master, master. Now, the word master when he says, Master, because you say we'll throw the nets out. That word master is used elsewhere in Luke's gospel and throughout the, throughout the gospel accounts as a reference to a, a teacher or a rabbi that would have brought good instruction. If you notice, this is Peter, James, and John's first encounter personally with Jesus as he calls them as his disciples. And so they say, Master, listen, if you say, Rabbi, if you say throw out the nets, we'll throw out the nets. They throw out the nets and there's this massive catch of fish. And he comes back at the end of them hauling in all the fish out of all the nets. And when he addresses Jesus next, what does he say? He doesn't say master or rabbi or teacher. He says, Lord, Lord, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's a shift in address to, toward Jesus from master and teacher to one who is Lord. And when you look where that, where that word Lord is used elsewhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it comes with connotations of divinity, that he's recognizing Jesus is more than just a mere teacher. And if Jesus is more than just a mere teacher, then what he has to say then is where the buck stops and he has final authority in my life. And for those who have, a, have reoriented their lives around who Jesus is, the people that he's gathering to himself, and the mission that he's sending them on, that he becomes now their source of authority. 
There's a reorientation of authority that takes place in their lives. Philip Ryken said it this way. He said, many people say they want to follow Jesus, but instead of leaving everything behind, they try and take it all with them. They call themselves Christians, but they're not willing to give up their selfish ambitions, sinful pleasures, comfortable surroundings, bitter grudges, precious idols, or simply the right to live the way they want to live. It's diet Christianity at its core. I want to take Jesus and add him to my life, but I'm going to hang on to my selfish ambitions. I'm going to hang on to my sinful pleasures. I'm going to hang on to my comfortable surroundings. I'm going to hang on to my bitter grudges. I'm going to hang on to my precious idols and the right to say when and where I go and do. To live however I want to live. There's a reorientation of authority that takes place in those who get a taste of the genuine article and leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And one of the ways you know whether or not you've had this reorientation of authority in your life is based on which parts of the Bible you receive and which parts of the Bible you reject or which parts of the Bible you resist. Right? Is, re- is, re- is really Jesus' word the source of authority for your life? Because there are folks in our culture and even within many of our churches who've tasted of diet Christianity who may receive what the Bible has to say about caring for the poor. They love that idea. Now, whether they actually do it or not is another question, right? They love the idea about caring for people who are in need, but they reject what the Bible has to say about sexuality. Or they receive what the Bible has to say about speaking graciously, but they might reject what the Bible has to say about speaking truthfully or vice versa. They love what the Bible has to say about speaking truth. They don't do it with a whole lot of grace. Right? Or they receive what the Bible has to say about loving your neighbor, but they reject what the Bible has to say about being yoked to an unbeliever. Or they receive what the Bible has to say about extending grace, but they really bristle with the idea of exercising discipline. Or they receive what the Bible has to say about saving. I love the idea of putting money back. Right? So I can have a great retirement or I can purchase that thing that I want to buy. But they really reject and resist what the Bible has to say about giving. See, one of the ways you know whether or not you've really reordered your life around Jesus as your source of authority is based on what parts of the Bible you receive versus which parts of the Bible you resist or which parts of the Bible you reject. So there's a reorientation of security, a reorientation of authority, but there's also a reorientation of community. A reorientation of community. I want you to notice in Luke's gospel here and a little further on in the text there's a, it's interesting because the diversity of the disciples just kind of stands off the page a little bit to me as I read through. Because on the one hand, you have Peter who spent his life in a boat fishing, right? Real blue-collar dude, right? That's what he's been doing all of his life, fishing, fishing, fishing. Every morning, putting the boat out into the water, dropping the nets, bringing the fish in, bringing in the market, or putting the food on his table. Very blue-collar guy. But you fast forward a little bit in Luke chapter 5 down to verses 27 to 32. You see Jesus showing up, and he calls Levi, who's a tax collector, more of a white-collar kind of guy, right? So you got a blue-collar guy in Peter, and you got a white-collar guy in, in Levi, and yet here they are, and Jesus calls them both, and he brings them into this new community where it's not like everybody's like me, Right? <laughs> That's where, by nature, that's what we tend to gravitate toward, those who are like us. But the community that Jesus is drawing to himself and the reorientation of communities, that we don't just kind of gravitate toward those who are like us. We gravitate toward those who are on mission with us. Those who are engaged in what Jesus is doing alongside of us. 
Regardless of what ethnic background they are, what color skin that they have, or what side of the tracks that they were raised on, we gravitate toward those people who have been, their lives have been reoriented around Jesus and his people and his mission, Jesus and his people and his mission, and we're drawn to them because they're part of Jesus' people and they're on Jesus' mission. It's more than they just like to hang out the same place we like to hang out on Saturday nights. So there's a security, authority, community. But notice also there's a reorientation of activity. Of activity. In verse 10, Jesus tells Peter, he says, listen, Peter, you've been catching fish all of your life. Now you're going to catch men. You're going to catch men, Peter. And Peter leaves the boats, and he leaves the nets, and he follows Jesus, and Jesus begins to teach him how to catch men. Joel Green, another commentator on the book of Luke, said disciples will no longer catch dead fish in order to sell them in the marketplace, but they will catch people and give them liberty, set them free. In fact, when Jesus shows up, his very first sermon he ever preaches in the temple, in the synagogue there. He shows up and he opens a scroll to Isaiah. And listen to what he reads in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to pre- proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and to set at liberty all those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stands up in the synagogue. He reads that scroll from Isaiah and sets it down. And his public ministry is commenced in Luke's gospel. And he says, My ministry is going to be about releasing captives and setting those who are bound free, giving them liberty. And then he calls Peter and James and John and says, you guys are going to catch him with me. You guys are going to catch him with me. There's a reorientation of activity. And so we're no longer a part of a church just because of the goods and services that they offer. But now we're a part of a body of believers because of the mission that they're on. And they go out into the community telling Jesus' story and sharing their story. Right? There's an objective side of that catching, and there's a subjective side of that catching. Right? You can't just tell your story because somebody else could go, well, that's great, that's your story, but here's my story. Here's what's changed my life. No, there's an objective reality of who Jesus is and what he's done that has birthed in me this reorientation of my life around him. I want to invite you to the same thing. It's, just not, it's not just my take on reality, but what God has done in human history. So there's an objective side of that, telling Jesus' story, and a subjective side of that, sharing your story, and how those two things have intersected, and the change that it's born in your life as you've reoriented your sources of security, as you've reoriented your your, uh, source of authority and your experience of community and the activity that you're involved in now of catching men. See, diet Christianity takes Jesus and says, let me just add you to my other list of things that I've got going on. I'm going to maintain everything else I've got. I'm going to add you to it. Real, authentic Christianity. And this is the reason why it's hard to palate sometimes. It's because it, 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 it demands, it demands a reorientation of life around who Jesus is, the people that he's gathering, and the mission that he's on. Now, some of us might kind of go, well, you know what? Isn't this, isn't this whole idea of radical reorientation, isn't this whole idea of really reorienting my life around who Jesus is, 
the people he's gathering and the mission that he's on. Isn't that whole idea just kind of reserved for varsity Christians? Right? Those people that God would send to seminary, right? Those guys who go and study the Bible for, for eight years, or those guys who are called to pastor a church somewhere. Isn't it just kind of reserved for those varsity Christians? And we might be tempted to think that because when we read this story, right, it's about Peter, James, and John. And they're, who are they? They're apostles. Well, of course they're varsity Christians, right? You got the apostles here, Peter, James, and John. These guys are amazing. And while the story is about their encounter with Jesus, the story isn't written to them, is it? It's not. Go back into Luke chapter 1, verse 1. When Luke writes the gospel of Luke, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. He says, Theophilus, I want you to be convinced and persuaded of all the things that you've heard about what Jesus has done. So I researched all these things and I brought to you an ordered account of what Jesus said and where he went and what he did and what happened to him. Because I want you to be persuaded, not only intellectually, but to the point where your will gets engaged and you're following Jesus. And so while we read Luke chapter 5, and it's about Peter, James, and John's encounter with Jesus, it's not written to Peter, James, and John. It's written to Theophilus and by extension to everyone who would read Luke's gospel to say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not just reserved for varsity Christians. It is Christianity at its core. It is Christianity at its core. This reorientation around who Jesus is, the people that he's gathering, and the mission that he is on. Now, some of us may go, well, what more is there to following Jesus than just kind of showing up to church and life group when my schedule allows, maybe coming to a service opportunity every once in a while whenever you know, we don't have kids' games on that sun- Saturday morning or that Sunday afternoon? What more is there to reorient my life around Jesus, right? I-, I come to church whenever I can, and I come to a life group every once in a while. Right? What more is there? Well, if you think about it, if every other life transition requires this kind of reorientation, to say that, to say I'm just going to add some religious activity to my schedule, right? That's kind of what diet Christianity does. It says I'm going to add some religious activity to my schedule whenever it's convenient for me. And if you're just going to add religious activity to your schedule, it's kind of like saying that, you know, when you get married, when you get married, right? exchange vows, stand before your friends and family, and you move into a shared dwelling, Right? And you lay your head on the pillow next to somebody else at night in a different bed. And so my life must be reoriented now because I've moved all my clothes into a shared dwelling and because I've now sleep in a different place. Now, those of you who are married and been married for any time, you know that that doesn't mean that your life has been reoriented around that new identity that you have as a husband or a wife. Just because you have a shared dwelling and just because your clothes have been moved to a different closet doesn't mean that your life has been reoriented around what it demands of you as a husband or what it demands of you as a wife. And to think that just because we add some religious activity to our lives, that our lives have been reoriented is as silly as thinking that our life has now been fundamentally changed because we moved our clothes into a different closet. Or about having a kid, right? Those of you who, who, who've had children... You understand, listen, when I got married, ask my lovely wife up here, when I got married, it was like character boot camp, man. I didn't realize how selfish I was until I was married. (laughs) My wife didn't realize how selfless she was until she got married to me. (laughs) But I didn't realize how selfish I was. And then we had kids. 
And again, I didn't realize how selfish I was until we had another human being in the world that was dependent upon us for everything, right? And to think that my life has been reoriented around being a parent just because we painted the extra bedroom pastel pink or baby blue and moved a little crib in there is foolish. Just as foolish as thinking that because I add some religious activity to my schedule, my life's been reoriented around Jesus, his people, and his mission. It doesn't work that way. When Jesus calls, he says, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself. So the disciples lead everything, and they follow Jesus, where he goes, what he does, and what he says. Now listen, my second point. That was the first point. Second point is a lot shorter, I promise. <laughs> Here's the second point. What is it that's going to be sufficient enough to, re- to produce that kind of radical reorientation of life? Right? Because when you hear that, you know, man, diet Christianity tastes good to me. It just does. doesn't require a whole lot of me. Right? That low-calorie option is really pleasant. And that, that, that real authentic stuff, it, it, it doesn't necessarily taste as good to my palate right now. So what is it that's going to propel me forward to reorient my life around who Jesus is, the people that he's gathering, and the mission that he's on? And I want to show you from this text that the only thing that's sufficient to do that is a true encounter with grace. It's a true encounter with grace. I want you to look in, the, in, in Luke chapter 5 with me in verse 8. Peter's response to the demonstration of Jesus' authority over nature. Because Jesus says, throw out your nets on the other side of the boat. And they have this miraculous catch of fish. And I want you to notice what Peter says when he says, depart from me, O Lord. Why? For I am a sinful man. Jesus, Peter, in this moment, right, up to this point, Jesus had built a reputation as a teacher or a rabbi as he opens the scrolls in the synagogues and he reads. He's a rabbi, he's a master, he's a teacher. But at this point in Peter's recognition, Peter recognizes there's more than a mere teacher here. There's more than a mere man here. God is in our midst. The Lord is in our midst. And he has this this, this, this repulsive response, right? It's kind of like a magnet where you got these two uh, similar poles that as you try and bring them together, they push each other apart. And Peter's going, I can't handle this. I can't handle this encounter with God. God is in our midst. I've, I've got to get away. Depart from me. This is the exact same response when you read in the Old Testament of folks like Gideon or Manoah or Isaiah or even the nation of Israel. Whenever the presence of God is manifest among them and revealed among them, they say, we can't handle this. And so Peter says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter has a recognition of Jesus' divinity and he declares his own sinfulness. And because of those two things, he's like, I can't stand in his presence. Get away. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus responds to Peter's declaration of his own sinfulness and inadequacy. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he doesn't say first, right? At first, he doesn't go, well, Peter, man, listen, dude, you've got it all wrong, right? You're missing the mark. You're missing the boat here, Peter. You're not really that bad. Right? You're not really as bad as you think, Peter. Sure, you're a little rough around the edges, but aren't we all, Peter? Right? You're a blue-collar dude who's been working in fishing boats all his life. You're a little rough around the edges. Cheer up, buddy. Take your, don't take yourself so seriously. Right? You're a little too gloom and doom there, Peter. 
Right? Why are you taking yourself so seriously? Let's be honest, Peter. Like, you've got some good qualities that totally outweigh all the bad things about you. All the rough spots, right? Is that what Jesus says to him? He didn't say that at all. In fact, Jesus is silent on Peter's declaration of his sinfulness. And listen, anytime you're having a conversation with somebody and, and they're kind of articulating a particular position to you and, and you, or you're articulating a particular position to them and there's no response from them, there's just kind of silence, oftentimes that's what? An acknowledgement of the fact that they agree with you. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't say anything. You go, Peter, you're not as bad as you think. You're not so sinful. You're cool, dude. I like hanging out with you. Didn't say that. In fact, Jesus' silence is an affirmative response to say, Peter, you you hit the nail on the head, buddy. You hit the nail on the head. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 10. What does he say? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Peter. From now on, you're going to be with me. We're going to be catching men, Peter. Don't be afraid. So in one fell swoop, here's what, here's what Jesus does. He affirms Peter's own understanding of his sinfulness. Peter says, I'm a sinful guy, Jesus. I can't be in your presence. And Jesus says, yes, you are, but don't be afraid. Yes, you are sinful, Peter, but don't be afraid. Now, how can Jesus say simultaneously, Peter, you are incredibly sinful, but at the same time, Peter, do not be afraid. Because what you find in the person of Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that you and I are more sinful than we could ever admit to ourselves. But we're also more loved and accepted than we could ever possibly dream So Peter, Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter. Yes, you're sinful. Yes, you're sinful. But here I am, Peter. I stand as a mediator between you and God. So don't be afraid. Come close, Peter. Come close. What Peter encounters that day on the boat is an experience of grace. There's a recognition of his sin, but also an acknowledgement of God's grace Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And for those of us who have tasted real Christianity, not diet Christianity, not moralistic therapeutic deism, but real Christianity, there was a moment in your life where you said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. You may not have used those words, but you felt that weight. I cannot stand in the presence of God. And yet through Jesus Christ, God is saying, do not be afraid. Come close, closer than you could possibly imagine. Because in Jesus Christ, what I have, and in Jesus Christ, what you have, is a mediator who stands between us and God to make relationship with God for sinful human beings a possibility and a reality. I want you to listen to what J.C. Ryle said as he commented on this text. He said, let us strive to know more and more every year we live our need of a mediator between ourselves and God. Let us seek more and more to realize that without a mediator, our thoughts of God can never be comfortable. And the more clearly we see God, the more uncomfortable we must feel if there's no mediator between us and him.
Above all, let us be thankful that we have in Jesus the very mediator whose help our souls require. And through him, we may draw near to God with boldness and cast fear away. Out of Christ, God is a consuming fire. In Christ, he's a reconciled father. Without Christ, the strictest moralist may well tremble as he looks forward to his end. Through Christ, the chiefest sinners may approach God with confidence and feel perfect peace. See, the only thing that's going to grab our hearts and set us ablaze with a fire to reorient our security and authority and community an activity around who Jesus is, the community of people that he's gathering to himself, and the mission that he is on is a true encounter with the grace of God. And the only way you encounter grace is through an acknowledgement of your own sin and a recognition. A recognition of Jesus as a mediator through whom you can come close, closer than you dare possibly imagine to God. Diet Christianity is not real Christianity. It's a low-calorie alternative. That is the, the kind of the mainstay in churches all across our nation. And my hope and my heart here for us is that we would not Continue to consume it, but that God would ruin, would ruin our palates for that taste. In my life. Because everything that I stand before you and share. I'm looking in the mirror at myself. I pray that God would ruin my palate for that taste. And I pray that God would ruin your palate for that taste. So that at Sabine Creek Fellowship, we would be a people who are tasting real Christianity. And our security would be in Jesus. Our authority would be in Jesus. Our community would be with the people that are on Jesus' mission. And our activity would be about catching men by telling Jesus' story, who he is and what he's done, sharing our story, what he's done in our lives. Because we've had a true encounter with grace. Wow, I'm jealous to see that. I'm jealous to see that in my life. I'm jealous to see that in your life. And I'm jealous to see that in the life of our church. The last two weeks, we talked about the Bible and we talked about prayer. This week, we're talking about mission and reorientation. Because what I want us to see, and I'll close with this, what I want us to see is that the Bible is indeed the milk of God's word that will grow us up into salvation, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. And prayer is indeed the means by which we petition God and intercede for others. But the Bible and prayer are not just the means to our own personal piety and holiness. They're also the fuel that propelled this reorientation of our lives around who Jesus is, the people that he's gathering, and the mission that he is on. So as you read the story of 
redemptive history with us this year. The story of how God's created it and how we fell and how God is redeemed and what God will do one day to restore. And as you pray through the words of Scripture as you're reading them with us this year, and I hope for myself and I hope for you, is that there is some reorientation that's taking place in your life. And there is some ruining of the palate that we have for diet Christianity. Let's pray together. Father, we come today giving you thanks for your grace and mercy. Father, without your grace, we would be lost and adrift in a world, even in a context in which many of us were raised of aspiring to live a good moral life that makes us feel good about ourselves and makes others feel good about themselves. And we would call on you just when we need you to get us out of a fix, out of a bind. But Father, may our experience of Christianity move beyond diet Christianity, move beyond moralistic therapeutic deism. And Father, I pray that through Sabine Creek Fellowship, you would call men and women to leave everything behind and follow you. So that it would not be just an addition of you to their lives. So they can, we can maintain our bitter grudges and we can maintain our sinful pleasures and we can maintain our selfish ambitions. But all those things would recede into the background because we've tasted of your grace. And that grace is reorienting everything around your son and the people who are bound to him and the mission that he is on. Father, may you raise up those kinds of people through Sabine Creek Fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.